right. Well, welcome back to another episode of Hallway Discussions, and it's a bit of a different one this time. We got a different. We have a we have a guest. We have a new guest. Um, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we're just going to be discussing some politics today because um, it's been a big day, a big day, a past big past few days for politics. You know, um, we have Liz Truss getting into power. We have the Labour Party conference. So yeah, we're just going to. Le- uh, Tom is a member of the UEA Labour Society. And yeah, no, we're gonna get tucked into that. We'll address labor. They've got a lot of, a lot of controversies as well as like a lot of things to reflect on. I think. So Tom, how will we? We just let's get a, a sense of who you are. Uh, so my, I'm Tom, as mentioned. <laughs> uh, I'm the secretary of UEA Labour Society. Recently appointed secretary. Congrats. Um, we're not completely affiliated with the Labour Party, but we are all people who are in some way that way inclined towards the party okay so are you are you a member of the labor party i'm or? not a member of the labor party okay the i have been but you have at been the moment okay i'm not a huge fan of the leadership but i will give them like a fair hearing i'm not going to sit here and be like gross damn is evil yeah i'm also <laughs> not be like he's an angel he's yeah he's in the middle mm-hmm. okay oh sick how long have you been just since you've been at uea have you always been a la- part of the labor society um yeah i joined in second year okay and the society was sort of on its knees a little bit there really? were not many members okay um in the elections you know after those elections each year mm-hmm. we only got four people you need a whole committee we only had four people standing so we all won by default it's been on its knees a little bit since the leadership changed once the leadership changed from corbyn to starmer mm-hmm. membership really sort of piled off for the why do you think that is i think even if he wasn't as popular as the electorate mm-hmm. corbyn's message was more popular with young people i he was see more like starmer is well he doesn't even really deny it. he is a mm-hmm. mainstream politician yeah in the very center of politics as it is mm-hmm. corbyn was a long way up there he was sort of a protest politician He's, yeah his background wasn't in law like starmer it was mm-hmm. in protest and mm-hmm. um, so i think he resonated a bit more with with students who felt a bit more outside the system. I see. And more um, so than Starmer. What um I'm curious to see what branched what what stemmed your interest into politics and to labor as a whole? Did it start um, off as a kid? Did you join some protests or, or what what's the backstory to that? I sort of grew up around it. Okay. Um, I come from quite a working class background. My dad mm-hmm. was a union rep. Both my parents worked in the NHS. Okay. My dad was a union rep for paramedics. Mm-hmm. And then, do you remember sort of 2011 time, all the austerity cuts yeah, came yeah. in? A first, George Osborne. Yeah, <laughs> good times. Um, one of the first sort of political memories I have was mm-hmm. a protest, well, a strike picket down in Bury St. Edmunds, where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, we went right down, I don't know if anyone will know it, down Angel Hill. I was about, oh, what had I been? I'd been about eight or nine. I was much more interested in the Gregs we went past than the actual fit. <laughs> but in hindsight, mm-hmm. it's a big moment. And yeah, I think that's where it started. I see. So are your parents also ad- uh, like advocates for Labour Party? Or w- um, what, is, what, is, what is it like? Yeah, my, my dad was also a union rep. He's not too fond of the party as it is. Mm-hmm. My mum's one of those people who's not that involved in politics, but has very strong opinions I that see. don't... Sort of strong opinions on society and people and problems mm-hmm. that don't always translate into political activism. I see. But they know their thoughts. They There's know the... people like that. Okay, I see. Hmm. That's that's quite interesting because um for me at least none of my none of my parents or any of that were ever interested remotely interested into politics at all. So when I was I think maybe in year 10, year 11, doing my GCSEs, started looking at the news. Mm. A lot of people in my year were like, "Oh, what are you doing? You you know, you're a young guy. What are you looking at the news for?" It's like it's kind of like a civic duty, you know. You have yeah. to try and get involved into into politics and see see what your place is, see what you want to do, see what you want to believe in, and it's kind of like that. That's how, probably how I yeah. got into politics, and that's that's pretty interesting because I was living abroad a lot, so I never had the opportunity to go like get into protests, get involved in anything like that. So that's that's actually really really fascinating. Did your parents just say, "Oh, come along with me to this to this protest," or did you actually know what was going on? Um. I don't think I did at the time. I was very quite young. Mm-hmm. I think it was more, it wasn't so much we need to get our kids involved in politics as it was mm-hmm. uh, we can't leave them home alone. Oh, so it's coming okay. along. <laughs> and then for years afterwards, we had, you know, the placards they always have. Yeah. Every time I needed like any arts and craft stuff, cardboard, paper, it would always be the back of union pallets. And oh, union okay. Placards. So it was always just sort of around. That I wasn't see. Like, like you've got, obviously got a start where you realise, oh, this is, this is important. Mm-hmm. It's just always around me. And eventually I thought, oh, yeah. And you just slowly drift into it. I see. Oh, that's that's before a... you know it. You're studying it at uni. And you're <laughs> yeah. Know what happened? Yeah, I was just about to go on to that. Like, um, did that 
Well, what was the main reasons for going to university to study politics and the whole like political structure? And stuff I like kind that? of got like kindly bullied into it. Like I didn't want to go to uni. Okay. I wasn't because you know some people are like I've wanted to go to this uni since I was nine years old. I'm going to do all the right A levels to get into it. Exactly. I was just yeah. sort of I just about passed my GCSEs. Wanted to go to sixth form with my mates. Went to mm-hmm. sixth form, and then at sixth form I did politics. Okay. And I, I knew a fair bit. And both my teachers. My mm-hmm. history teacher and my politics teacher were both like, you've got to do politics at uni. And I was sort of like, eh, I don't want to go to uni. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I ended up sort of getting persuaded. Only applied here, ended up coming here. Mm-hmm. COVID happened. Oh. Still been all right. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, no, that's great. Um, is there any specific part of politics that, like, how about your future goals? Any Anything you really want to focus in after university? Or is it still kind of uh, up in the air? I'm going to see see where, see where life takes me, that kind of... Yeah, it's. I'm, I'm hopefully going to go into teaching. Cause into teaching? Because with a politics degree, there isn't as many jobs as they suggest. You've got the civil service. Yeah. You've got things that have got nothing to do with politics but do the skills. Yeah. You've got politics, obviously, mm-hmm. Or teaching. I don't like the third for first three, so we're going with that one. <laughs> okay. And uh, is do you enjoy teaching? Have you done? I do. Any? I do enjoy a bit of. Um, I'm going to do a shameless plug here. Yeah, go for I it. I run a uh, political page on Instagram. A few things wrong. Quite popular. Got almost forty thousand followers. Wow. And a lot of that. Forty thousand. Yeah, it's not bad. Not fact, bad. I, that's I, an understatement, right? I will advertise this on there if that's going to help. Oh, you. that would we'll be great. Whack yeah. It on there. Yes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so on there, I sort of. I used to sort of just rant about politics, and then mm-hmm. people were like, "What does this mean?" So I sort of, sort of started outlining what things mean. Because you know, like a lot of time in politics, you get statements. Well, come on, Starmer does this a lot. This will yeah. come up later, mm-hmm. where they say things really wordy, yeah. very wordy, very confusing, and no mm-hmm. one's quite sure what it means. Yeah, I just sort of did sort of plain English. This is what this believes. This is what that means. This is what this will do. Just mm. very, very like precise, clear. This is what that means. Something that mainstream politics is probably lacking. So you're yeah. filling the mark. You're filling the market in a I sense. I do try to keep things simple. Not like not patronising. Not like oh, this is what an MP is. Just like this is the concept. This is what it means without any of the waffle or the. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's all that that's stuff. that's actually quite. That's that's kind of similar. Like that's coincidence because I used to do something similar. Mm. I didn't create a page. Nothing as successful as yours. <laughs> but um, I just I would be the only one in my school pretty much who cared about politics at all. So whenever something big on the news, something happened to me. I'll be posting everywhere. I'll yeah. be getting messages. Oh, what, 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 what do you mean? What, what is this? What do you? And then a lot of the time, I was a source of news <laughs> for some people who had no idea what was going on. So that that's a really yeah. like a weird coincidence, you know. That's 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 pretty sick, honestly. Um, all right, so we'll move on to move on to actual actual politics now, you know. Um, yeah. What was your initial reaction to Liz Truss getting elected as prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party, at least? Well, it was it was surprised. We're not surprised that she'd won, mm-hmm. but surprised that she'd won by a lot less than people expected. People were expecting a huge landslide, and mm-hmm. then I don't remember the exact percentage. I think I, I think I got it here. You know, I got some statistics now. Ooh. This this, po- this podcast is elevating. Yeah, um, it's a fifty-seven percent uh, win percentage. See, that is not a secure win. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, it's a majority. It's a healthy majority, but that yeah. is not like a landslide. It's not like what Boris got. Yeah, um, it's. It's not well. Theresa May didn't go to election; she just won unanimously. Mm-hmm. But it is not a secure victory. Not at all. And all the polls were saying it's going to be a landslide. Mm. There'll be no chance for Rishi Sunak. But I was, I was, I was never really that convinced. Can't no. lie. For me, at least, um, she's not the right one. No. But I'm curious to see how, how you, how you think of Liz Truss as their first few, first two weeks, three weeks in in charge. How do you think it's it's gone? Well, she managed. There was always, they said in the news, she'd come into power and there was an instant cost of living crisis. So she yeah. wasn't going to get a honeymoon period. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the Queen passed away. Yeah. So she sort of got that two weeks, not of a honeymoon period, but sort of a two weeks, um, what do you call it? Like a truce. No one yeah. was going to attack her for those two mm-hmm. weeks. And then those two weeks ended and yeah. everything it just just started tumbling her. down. <laughs> didn't yeah. It? yeah. yeah. So it just oh. tumbled down. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, you had big union disputes started almost instantly. Yeah. They were very clever in pausing them whilst in the period of mourning, but that ended and they came straight back. Um, and then she obviously had the mini budget, which I'm sure will come up. Because <laughs> yes. um, there was, um, she was, she was advertising and like kind of, uh, yeah, during her election campaign, she was going to say, I'm going to cut taxes, mm. boost growth, all these like big nonchalant statements which really re- mean nothing yeah but um so she's tried to put some of them into practice as we've seen through this mini budget yeah well it's always sort of said when a leader is running a election campaign 
for party leader, mm -hmm. they sort of pander to their own party. A Labour leader yeah. will be like, we're putting workers first. They'll sing some very left-wing protest songs. Then once they get into power, they'll start having cups of tea with the king. It sort yeah. of changes a bit. <laughs> and with Tory leaders, you expect them to start with very bold promises of neoliberalism, cutting taxes, cutting workers' rights. Yeah. And then when they get into power, they're meant to sort of sort of tone it down a little mm -hmm. bit. Compromise to an extent. Yeah. Uh, Liz Truss didn't do that. No. At all. <laughs> She like, said she was going to cut taxes and she's cut them yeah. and now the pound's collapsing and she's saying I'm going to do some more. Yeah. Like, <laughs> she's stuck to her word. That's one thing. That's that's a, the surprising thing. Yeah. You know? We don't really expect that. Oh, that's that's such the negative part though. We're at a point in politics where we, we assume the politicians aren't going to do mm. what they're going to say. So actually she's went through with her promises and as Rishi, uh, Rishi Sunak has said, you know, it's... It's going to all be a disaster. Yeah. And it's all coming to realization now that Liz Truss has <laughs> damaged confidence in almost everything. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty intense. And what do you think from Labour's perspective, what would they have done? What would they have done differently? Or what would you have done differently in terms of this cost of living crisis? Uh, for start with the cost of living crisis, the big thing that I would have done, which Labour do want to do mm -hmm. is a windfall tax. Energy, yeah. Like Liz Truss will say Putin's war on Ukraine has driven up energy prices. This is a price we pay to save Ukraine. Very romantic argument. Yeah. Um, but like France, they're also helping Ukraine. Their bills have gone up 4%. Bills haven't gone, well, bills have gone up because of the Ukraine war, mm -hmm. but then energy companies have just used that as an excuse. Our bills have doubled mm -hmm. and energy companies are making excess profits of 170 billion, I yeah, believe. It's ridiculous. Um, could you explain to the public who may who may not know what a windfall tax is? Could you explain to them oh, that, what so is the concept of it? A windfall tax is basically when if a company starts making huge excess profits, not because of something they did. Like if you make more profits because you made a new thing that's popular, you mm -hmm. get to keep them. Yeah. If you made in more profits because you've opened some new shops, get to keep them. But if something else changes that had nothing to do with you mm -hmm. and you make a lot more profits, uh, the government can be like, yeah, that's not right. We're taking them away. And that is a windfall tax. I see. I don't know where the name comes from. I, um, yeah, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you. It's, it's got to have something to do with boats, hasn't it? It's got to have something to Windfall, do with Windfall, yeah, I, I would assume so. Yeah, okay. It's got a... It's got some sort of connection and yeah, maybe back into the merchant times and something like yeah. that probably. Yeah, so uh, you would go for a windfall tax. Windfall tax on their profits to fund keeping bills down. Uh, mm -hmm. There's got to be some nationalization of at least one energy company yeah. to keep prices low. Mm -hmm. You don't even... Nationalization can be expensive, but if you nationalize one set its price below the rest, the rest will have to pull their lev their levies down. Mm -hmm. And I think no choice. And I think that's what uh, Keir Starmer announced at his conference mm. as well. He wants to not completely disrupt the industry by nationalizing every single industry, but go to like a French style, what is it, the EDF? Yeah. I think one of them, one of their main energy suppliers, go, go along that road and see where that takes you because it's less expensive. Mm. And also you bring some kind of stability to the market, you know? Yeah, it's a good plan. It's uh, As I said, I'm not the biggest fan of Keir Starmer, but that was a clever move. Mm -hmm. um, creating a new company is cheaper. It also means that right-wing press can't attack you as much. They can't say, oh, it's going to cost this much. Yeah. It will keep energy, the energy industry more happy with you. Um, it, is, it is a clever move. He said he wants, I think it's called British Green Energy, mm -hmm. to be 100% renewable. Um, and mixed with some of his other policies, obviously he's proposing sort of leveling up but not in the Tory sense an actual help for deprived areas mm -hmm. and a build it in Britain policy so government businesses and government services would buy not exclusively but mostly products made in the UK mm -hmm. you so, would think that com governments would do that anyway right? you would think wouldn't you <laughs> most countries do yeah um, but no this policy green energy like places like Lowestoft um, mm -hmm. deprived old fishing towns if you sent a wind farm so there's already wind farms there but they're owned by like, the French government and the Norwegian government exactly if you bring mm -hmm. them into ownership of the British government and have production in those deprived places mm -hmm. and maintenance based in those deprived places you can do a lot to help these deprived towns that have been forgotten for decades for now. decades exactly and we've had 12 years of Tory government mm. now and can't say anything I can't say anything's been improved at all no the the railways are as bad as they yeah. as they possibly could be um, how would a la how do you you think a Labour government would respond to that? What would their first initial priorities be? What would be to cost of living? Hopefully by then would we'll be sold by the next general election. Mm. But what do you think would be the main priority that if you were the Labour Prime Minister, let's say, what would you get onto first? It's a big hypothetical yeah. in the future, but I think it is worth we're worth exploring. How many years time are we talking? Because the next general elections in in twenty twenty four. Ah, I so think twenty twenty four. 
I think. Well, I yeah. would say um, there's some polling done on this asking people, when do you think the cost of living crisis will be over? Mm-hmm. And the biggest proportion said within three years, but a solid 14%, all of it was 18% for three years, 14% for five years. Yeah. Another 14% said more than five years. And I agree with that. People seem to people are treating it like a COVID wave. COVID's come, it's bad, it will get better. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. No. It's not like the cost of living's here and then it will go back to normal. This reality of people being poorer is going to continue until someone does something about it. Mm-hmm. And the Tory government isn't. No, they're incre- lowering the tax for the people no. earning under £50,000. So I think even if Labour wait till 2024 to come to power, I think it will still be the cost of living crisis or the aftermath where a lot of working class and even middle class people are a lot poorer is still going to be with them. Mm-hmm. So I think their first priority will be sorting that out. Big mm-hmm. public sector pay rises to pull everyone's pay up. Hopefully a removal of some of the trade union laws to make it easier for workers to secure more wealth for themselves. And then I think the next thing would be the NHS. The it, NHS is the third on the list. I think so. Because hmm. um, I think the thing with the NHS is it's a bit more of a long-term thing. It's not it like is. They, it's not like they can come in on day one and be like, yeah, we're going to fix it. Yeah, because there are a lot of structural issues at, mm. at play in, in terms of the NHS. But I'm curious on wh- how do you think strengthening the trade union laws or... Oh, no, loosening the trade union, mm. sorry. How would that have a big impact? And people say trade unions are very disruptive and yeah. they disrupt. We've seen strikes for the past few months on, in, in terms of the trains and, and the Royal Mail as well. How do you think that would help? Would not, wouldn't that just increase the issues we're suffering Well, in terms of the strikes? There's a lovely graph. I wish I could show it on a podcast <laughs> where you've got two lines. You've got the amount of work workers are doing, the amount of wealth they create mm-hmm. versus what they get paid. And between the end of the Second World War and 1974, mm-hmm. productivity went up almost double by about 100%. Wages mm-hmm. went up 93%. Since then, since 1974, when we've had more and more restrictions on trade unions, the amount of wealth workers are creating has gone up and up and up. But wages have not risen. Wages have stayed at their same rate that entire time. I Real see. wages haven't moved for about 30 years and they haven't, li- they haven't lined up with the amount of work workers have been doing for, what would it be, 50? I see. Um, people are very, very underpaid now for the yeah. compared to historic rates. And that is, I mean, people can argue otherwise, but I would say because of restrictions on trade unions. And yeah, trade unions are disruptive. They are, it can be annoying. Um, but at the end of the day, it's better to miss your train one day than be underpaid by about £20,000, which is what we're looking at now. That is true. But do you, a lot of people say... This start this the trend of wages going down and everything. It could also be due to the financial crash of two thousand eight because that took a big hit on the financial uh, on the public mm. finances as well as the finances of business and the economy as a whole. That that made it worse. Wages, well, they they did a little bit of going up in sort of twenty sixteen seventeen, mm-hmm. but yeah, wages got worse after, after two thousand eight. But they weren't moving much through the nineties or early two thousands. Mm. And the yeah, and there's there's a big link between like people always like. Trickle down economics. We're getting into this territory now. Yeah. But a lot of politicians will say, "Oh, a, a, a rising, a rising tide raises up all boats." People aren't boats. Sadly. No, people aren't um, boats. <laughs> when rich people get richer, like in COVID, a lot of billionaires double their wealth. That wealth don't come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's taken. It's stolen wages. A lot of it. And stolen. I think stolen's a good word. Really. Legal, but stealing. But is it? Um, and the the alternative argument would be that workers are freely able to they went into these contracts mm. knowing the conditions and they could leave any, at any time pretty much they can you can leave and get a different job but if no one went on strike all pay would be bad the only thing that divides us from our victorian ancestors who lived in slums and worked 12 hours a day mm-hmm. is the battles unions fought for better pay and better conditions uh, there's people like Liz Truss who would have us back there yeah. in a heartbeat if they could. <laughs> Especially, what's his name? Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's oh, yeah, Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> he is no business secretary yeah, and responsible well. for our energy, are responsible for a whole bi- our <sighs> running of the economy, mm. which is kind of scary. <laughs> this yeah. is very, very concerning. Um, yeah, so how about we move on to, you said you have some personal... You don't really agree entirely with what Keir Starmer and his leadership. What, what, what does that stem from? What, what do you disagree with him on? Well, I voted for Keir Starmer. I was a member when he came to power in the Labour Party. Oh, so you actually voted I in the Labour elections. Okay. Um, he stood on a 10 policy pledge, mm-hmm. 10 pledges that committed him to quite left-wing ideas. Um, we had wealth redistribution, nationalisation, worker ownership, worker democracy. He was committed to all of this. And then within a couple of months of taking leadership, by about 2021, he had systematically broken every single pledge he made. And I thought, 
That's not good. Faster than that. <laughs> Isn't um, that due, could that be due to COVID or was that just a whole tra- like a, a kind of pattern and trend he was on? He was yeah. He um, if you watch some of his old election videos, he mm-hmm. paints himself as being a very left wing trade unionist protest sort of advocate. I see. Um, human rights law. He puts himself very much on the left. Mm-hmm. And then once in power, he backtracked on a lot of that. Um, almost all of it. Well, all of it. And I understand people say, oh, it's pragmatic. Yeah. Pragmatism is scrapping maybe one or two and altering them slightly. Breaking every single one. <laughs> that's, uh, that can't be. That's, that's just disingenuous. <laughs> but I think the interesting thing is now he's gone back on some of the stuff he went back he on. He has, yes. He said he, said he wasn't going to nationalise energy. Then he said he wouldn't nationalise the railways. Now, in that speech yesterday, he's gone back on that. Mm-hmm. We've sort of got Keir Starmer yesterday put himself to the left of Keir Starmer from 2021, but still to the right of Keir Starmer from 2020. He sort of reinvented himself for the third time. And you think that's made him more popular? Uh, I think what he's done is, quite cleverly, he's brought in policies that are not so to the left that the right's going to be annoyed with him, Mm -hmm. but not so to the right that the left will be even more annoyed at him. He's sort of done a bit of a balancing act. Like, the left want energy nationalised, and what he's doing is setting up a publicly owned energy company. It's Mm -hmm. not quite nationalisation, but it is enough to sort of pacify them. I see. Uh, The left also obviously want higher taxes on the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And what he's done is he's saying he'll reinstate the 45% rate, Mm -hmm. which isn't higher taxes on the wealthy. That's just restoring what we had last Friday. Yeah. But it's enough to keep people on side. I see. And you think that's why people are... Because I think the arguments against people voting for Jeremy Corbyn in in the 2019 election was that he was too radical. Mm. He was ultra-socialist, which I don't see. I don't see. I just went back just before this podcast. I went through some of Jeremy Corbyn's ideas and proposed. They're not unreasonable. They're not unreasonable. I maybe have a few objections here and there, but it's not unreasonable. And like it perfectly like sums up the whole crisis we're having now that that we have no control of what these companies are doing. There's no regulation. So so Keir Starmer is probably, could be seen as a very moderate and uniting voice. Because yeah. I've never, I haven't seen the Labour Party this unite at a conference. I haven't seen them this united in a while. You know, this it's been it's been time since a lot of un, un, unity and not mm. conflicts and which you're seeing with the Conservatives. Yeah, they've done quite well on the unification front, and some of that came from um, what's the word? Quite uh, brutal means. There was a lot of kicking a lot of people out of the Labour Party. Yeah, some of them on valid grounds due to racism and anti-Semitism. Some of them, it was something of a purge of political opponents. Ken Loach. For example, Ken Loach, yeah, yeah. he was kicked out. And numerous members who are Jewish were kicked out for anti-Semitism, which doesn't quite add up. How does that make sense? It just doesn't. <laughs> um, they were anti-Zionist. They were quite strongly anti-Zionist. No fans of Israel, but they were not anti-Semitic. They were themselves Jewish. Now that, so I think that, that brings been... into a new kind of question. Mm. If anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, I wish the whole debate on that. And it's still not clear. It's I don't know where clear. I line up. It's, it's a dodgy issue, but Keir Starmer somewhat weaponized it to get rid of people he did not like, even when those people were clearly not hating Jews, given that they were themselves Jewish. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think even if these new reforms have sort of given way to the left, he's clearly been lobbied by someone. He's clearly got some voices in his ears. I don't think he'll be forgiven for some of his earlier antics. I see. But, I mean, clearly it's helping. I mean, polls mean nothing. But clearly in the polls, Labour doing much better than... They were mm. previously. They're ahead of the, the Tories by, I think, 12 points, 12 percentage yeah, yeah. points or something. So it must be doing something. Right? They're on 47%, which is very 47? Wow. It's, it's the highest lead they've had since 2001, I believe. <laughs> since Tony Blair. And I would imagine that that 2001 would have been just after 9-11. Because whoever's in yeah. power, they always got a little boost after that. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, same with the death of Diana. Yeah. Um, wow. But yeah, it's a, it's a big lead, and mm-hmm. it's a mix of Labour, people coming round to Labour. Because obviously, probably in our entire life, there's been the argument, oh, Labour can't handle the economy. Yeah. But now uh, the we... Tories have <laughs> trashed it, and Labour's just sort of sitting there happy, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, wow. No, the lead is very impressive, and it's going to silence a lot of criticism of Keir Starmer. I think so. Because for me, at least, I would, in the 2019 election, I couldn't vote, sadly, because I was not old enough. I was like a few days off. <laughs> but um, I pr- personally would have voted... For Boris, mm. just because I wanted Brexit sorted, he was—he said he was going to do it. He still hasn't. Yeah. But um, I just wanted stability. I just wanted something to get it sorted. But now that I'm going back, now I can see Keir Starmer as a pretty united figure. Mm. I see him as a very—he's a man of integrity. I can see that when he was handling himself during what is the the beer gate or whatever the party thing yeah. he was accused of. He said I would resign if I was found guilty and fined by the police. I really respected that, and I think yeah. he's a very straight talker. 
And I think um, for me, a lot of the criticism of Chris Stammer I've seen over the news, he's boring. He's not. He's not extravagant. Mm. But I think, I mean, if we do, we want a place where do we want politics a place where politicians are extravagant and like entertaining instead of actually focus on the issues That's yeah exactly Keir Starmer I mean you can say he's boring I've got my own criticisms but boring is not a valid criticism of a mm-hmm. politician um, yeah the flamboyant politicians we've had look at Boris Michael Fabrican oh yes even Tony Blair <laughs> to a certain extent the ones who are entertaining and have got a lot of personality doesn't tend to end well Trump as well we can add to that list yeah no definitely it's, no something someone who's boring but gets the job done mm-hmm. pretty good like look at the um the Welsh and Scottish parliaments, compared to Westminster. Westminster, they're shouting at each other all the time. Yeah. It's very, very cool, very entertaining. Yeah. But the Scottish parliament, someone stands up, they ask a question, Nicola Sturgeon gives an answer, they sit down and say thank you. Same in mm-hmm. Wales with Mark Drakeford. Yeah. Um, they get stuff done. It's boring, mm-hmm. but they get stuff done. They get done. And I think, I mean, that's perhaps probably one of my criticisms of the Westminster government. Anyway, I'm probably more advocate of federalism mm-hmm. as a whole. I don't know how that would work in terms of the UK, but definitely we'd we'd lead, need like an English Parliament or yeah. something, and something more more along the lines of that. But I don't see I don't see that happening. <laughs> well, interestingly, Keir Starmer, one of the few pledges he was elected as leader on and that he kept to, was for a federal England, a federal United Kingdom. Really? Yeah, yeah. no, he's all for it. Um, and I don't think I think the thing with England, did you know, people always arguing always their English culture. I would argue that English culture is a very regional affair. Like Yorkshire's got an identity. Yes. I thought to say Scouseland. Liverpool's got an identity. (laughs) Manchester, Cornwall, East Anglia as well. Mm -hmm. They've all got their own identities rather than a sort of joint English one. And if you look at the population of an English region, it's about the same as the population of Wales or Scotland. Exactly, yeah. So I think regional devolution, regional parliaments, like Germany has. Germany has a lot of... um, the Bundes, Bundes something. Yeah, that's their is. federal parliament. They have a lot of region, they have a regional, lot of regional ones. Yeah, which I think good. probably would be the way forward, you know. In I the think. UK. Yeah. And I think people are so fed up with Westminster politics now. Yeah. They've had a chance to redeem themselves. They didn't take it. No. And the pandemic, especially, the pandemic showed the brilliant confidence. Uh, so, the brilliant. I can't completely blank. <laughs> the brilliant, well, the uh, the epitome of what... Well, uh, sort of the capability of... Okay. Like, look at Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford. Their leadership in COVID was brilliant. They Nicola Sturgeon was weeks ahead of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, Boris Johnson was having parties <laughs> whilst thousands of people died. Yeah, it's... And it's just shown the complete incapability of Westminster. And, like, a lot of... It's a lot of the disrespect they have to the public. Mm. You know, they really... I can't see. I can't say any politician, if for me, except Keir Starmer, who has some integrity as a human mm. rights lawyer. He has some that kind of integrity. I don't see any any duty or any service to the public in in terms of what representatives are supposed to be are supposed to be like. Yeah. So it's well, no. The uh, minister for education, I believe, it is. I don't think she's in post anymore. But when she was appointed, there were protests outside of Downing Street because mm-hmm. it was just after they appointed Pincher. A known oh, sex offender yes. to the government. Oh god! She stuck her middle finger up at the public. Really? Into the vote. She just did that. Yeah. Oh shit! At protesters, just straight up. Wow. Like, These people do not care. They're not representative. I mean, is it pro- a lot of because of their eaten and those kind of the, the elitism? Which I've I've only noticed that this is a very English thing. Mm. This elitism. Yeah. I, it's it's not really well founded across Europe, at least. No. Well, Europe or a lot of Europe did that great thing where they slaughtered their entire aristocracy. France is all gone. Yeah. Germany is gone. <laughs> Russia is gone very, very brutally. Um, <laughs> Britain never did that. We've still got aristocrats hanging around. Mm-hmm. Lots of inbred people up there. And even you've got that sort of upper middle <laughs> class. That upper middle class who always go into politics. And they do not care. And they do, even if they do care, I think there's some people in the Labour Party, Emily Formbury, for example, mm-hmm. from quite a wealthy background. I do genuinely think she cares about working class people, mm-hmm. people below her. Well, not below her. We're equal. Yeah. <laughs> she thinks we're below. But they don't understand. Even if they care, they do not understand what life is like for most people. Mm-hmm. And that is that is the biggest problem. Whether they're Tory, Labour, they might they might want to help, they might not, but they don't know. They don't Regardless, know. Regardless, they don't know. Because I remember one politician, which I disagree with probably on a lot of things, um, Diane Abbott. Mm. She's hated from across the political sphere, on, in, on, in the public hater and everything. But I always seem like she's... She really does care. She doesn't. Yeah. Really, she doesn't really wants to represent and does a pretty good job of representing her community and mm. her issues. So there are those the exceptions to those politicians, definitely. I think definitely. 
yeah, no, it's <laughs> British politics is a pretty hectic, hectic place, and we've we've only scratched the surface of what yeah. what is happening. Are you? I mean, you're obviously happy that Boris has finally been evicted mm. and pushed to the side of British politics. But what does that mean in terms of the whole tide and the trend of where British politics is going, do you think? I don't know. I think across Europe, we're seeing it in Italy, Italy and Sweden yes. mm-hmm. right now. There was a surge to the right, yes. which has begun to calm down in some places and not others. I think Britain has now gone through that. Brexit was something of the spark the start, mm-hmm. UKIP, Brexit, and then into Boris Johnson and now Liz Truss. The yeah. government went further and further to the right, but I think we've now, I think there's been a realisation that that was not a good move. Yeah. Um, it's still going on in Europe. Mm-hmm. They have different electoral systems that make it do. easier. Um, though I do support those electoral systems, people want to elect fascists. <laughs> That's their right at yeah. the end of the day. We've got to fight it. Mm-hmm. But just saying no, you, you, you can't get rid of these things by ignoring them. That's very um, true. But... Yeah, I think I think this is the end of Britain's populist right. Mm-hmm. I think after after the trust is gone, uh, well, a one nation conservative as they call yes. them, there'll mm-hmm. still be an out of touch person who doesn't truly care. But a one nation conservative mm-hmm. will take over, uh, and I think Labour will probably stay where it is now in the sort of centre left. Don't know what the Lib Dems will get up to. I, I think don't know what they're doing now. They're swinging to the left, aren't they? Probably, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think our our march to the right that started in I'd say about 2011 mm-hmm. is coming to an end now. It's coming to an end, and I think uh, historically Labour's always done a, a, a very well with like Tony Blair, for example. Mm. He was a very centre left kind of thing. But se- just as I said that, we have Clement Attlee in the mm. in, in end of the World Second World War, a very perceived very left wing guy who did a lot of very good things. The NHS was created. I think the welfare state was created as well. But historically, in the recent times at least, Labour's always done a l- very well with centre-left, kind of moderating voices, um, yeah. s- helping to unite the the, comp- the the company, the country, you know? Yeah, no, they do. Labour Labour doesn't win very often. People sort of seem to think we go from Tory to Labour. Because of the electoral system, mostly, the Tories are in power the vast majority of the time. We had mm. 45, Clement Attlee. Yeah. He wasn't on the left of the Labour Party then, but mm. he is very much on the left of the Labour Party today. Mm. Yeah. Keir Starmer wouldn't create the NHS. <laughs> no. Um, and then obviously Howard Wilson, he was our, probably yes. our first working class Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a brilliant clip in the newspaper. The Daily Mail couldn't bring themselves to say working class, so they described him as a man who prefers tin salmon to the smoked stuff. That is such a posh and just pretentious thing to say. <laughs> um, but he did quite well. And then obviously, I think the thing with Tony Blair, Tony Blair obviously did historically amazing Yeah. Uh, in terms of elections. We won't get into some of the other stuff. Yeah. But there was a man before him who's widely forgotten, John Smith, who was very much on the, mm-hmm. not quite the far left of the party, but he was on the left of the party, very yeah. different to Blair. And it was under his leadership, he died before he could win an election. It was under his leadership that Labour's p- polling really, really improved. So it might be a bit of a controversial opinion, but I'd say, in a sense, Tony Blair rode into power on a wave that John Smith started. Hmm. Tony Blair obviously bolstered it. Tony Blair could win Tory voters. Yeah. But John Smith got Labour electable, and he was more on the left. John Smith. I have not heard this name. I mean, no, no I've not. You will have heard the name. I've heard the name. Oh, it's American. I remember, I think, what was the, the play I read as a kid at school? Was it, uh, Inspector Calls, you may have heard of Oh, it? yeah, I do love I love. John Inspector Smith Calls. was, it's a very good, it's a very good play. Brilliant play. And John Smith was a very, in my in literature essays, mm. oh, John Smith, the epitome of working class, mm. blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> but yeah, Tony Blair is probably one of my, he's probably the our, probably our best prime minister, apart from mm. Afghanistan and Iraq. Big I disasters. would say my biggest criticism, everyone's got their own criticisms of Tony Blair, he's not a popular man anymore. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the biggest thing he did wrong, not even being party political here, there's policies of his I don't like. Yeah. But his big mistake was he didn't create anything concrete. Like the NHS, that was concrete. Mm-hmm. Clem Attlee made it. Yeah. Tories could not get rid of it if they tried. Howard Wilson legalised divorce, abortion, homosexuality, yeah. brought in universities like this, all of sort of education for the working class. That was him. Mm-hmm. That was concrete. Tories couldn't get rid of that. Tony Blair did not make anything seismic. There was nothing that he made mm-hmm. that the Tories couldn't reverse. Like one of Tony Blair's best policies was Sure Start Centres. The Sure Start Centres were amazing. Mm-hmm. Tories came in. Could you explain what that is? They were sort of like... It was like a, a community hub run by the government. It provided childcare. There were toy mm-hmm. libraries, book libraries, or just libraries as we call them. <laughs> um, health checkups, especially if you lived in a deprived area and needed help with your kids, they were an absolute godsend. That was a brilliant policy of his. There is, it's he's not really credited with it enough, but that was a really good policy of his. But the problem was it wasn't concrete. When the toys came to power, they took it all away. They slashed the budget and it's gone. Yeah. 
That is one of my big problems with New Labour. They did good. They did bad, but they did good. But that good was easily reversible. How about, could you say devolution's been a success? And it's been Ooh. fermented. Really. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, devolution, very Be- successful. And it's, um, it's, it's still here, still going strong, isn't it? But I... I wouldn't argue that was something New Labour wanted to do. I think that's something their arm got twisted into doing. Because the 19... Mm. We're jumping back in time a bit here, Yes, we? we are, yeah. But the 1979 government, Labour mm-hmm. government, Jim Callaghan, got into some trouble with some trade unions, didn't end <laughs> amazingly for either party. Yeah. Uh, or anyone, really. Um, <laughs> he lost power because the Scottish Nationalist Party, Implied Cymru, withdrew their support for his minority administration because he refused devolution because of referendums didn't meet a threshold. Yeah. So then when Labour came back to power, it was almost symbolic that devolution will be given out. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it was something they desperately wanted to do. It was something that they had to do. Mm, that's interesting. That's very interesting because I remember, I think just thinking back, I remember the Wel- it was always a big opposition to Welsh devolution. Mm. I think they rejected a like, couple referendums for any sort of Welsh parliament or what, 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 I think they call it the Senate now or something. Yeah, the, it, it was the Welsh Assembly. The Welsh Assembly, that was, to, yeah. They've changed it to parliament now. Mm-hmm. If you get it wrong, they're not very happy. <laughs> the Senate, I've probably said that wrong. Apologies, Welsh Senate, people. Yeah. I, I find Wales interesting because Scotland approved their parliament straight away. They're yeah. like, yes, we want this. But Wales, out of all the countries in the UK, aside Northern Ireland, which we won't go into, That's... Uh, Wales is the one who's been sort of most screwed over. They lost their language for a long time. They lost all their legal rights. They didn't even have a flag until the 1950s. Yeah. They were completely sort of absorbed and annihilated by England. Yeah. Scotland sort of got to join on almost an equal footing that then slowly got... Um, Great and great. Yeah, well, they joined on an even fitting with the United Oh, and Crown, then, yeah, they've lost they, all the they power. They lost yeah. it and then they started to get it back. But Wales, I don't understand. If I was Welsh, I would be very angry and very much in favour of independence. Yeah, because, um, uh, what is it? They yeah, they, All English, it's English and Welsh law com- mm. kind of combined. Scotland's got their own, but Wales does not. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange th- kind of thing. And I think, yeah, they've always just been absorbed by yeah. the UK, which... And yet they they don't want... They didn't they want, didn't want it. as much. Yeah. Which is kind of... but. When I go when I go to Wales, well, at least I've never been. But when I when I meet uh, when I meet any Welsh people, there's a very strong identity there. Mm. The very very strong identity. Yet it's not it's not that strong for a parliament or any rep- sort of representation, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it, it is an odd one. I don't know much about it. There is a um, abolished Welsh Assembly Parliament. They don't do very well. No, <laughs> um, and turnout in their elections is quite high. So it seems like a lot of people want it now. But at the time. People weren't so keen on it. And I don't even understand why you'd ever vote no to devolution. Mm-hmm. If someone's offering you more power yeah. to your local community, it seems really weird to say, nah, you can keep it in London, it's fine. <laughs> like, it's it's a bit baffling. It's a bit baffling. But I think, just probably an end to that, to that thought, federalism is probably the way forward for the UK yeah, to stay together happen. in any sort of way. It will happen in our lifetimes for sure. I think so. And do you think the Queen will still remain as head of state? Oh, the king. Oh, the king. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. with, with Wolf. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I I don't like the monarchy at all. I would have. Is it the see institution it or what is? Oh, both. The the, fi- the, the, the people. I'm not going to speak ill of the queen. She's died, but the, the, she wasn't. I mean, I'm doing it now, aren't I? She wasn't <laughs> quite the sweet old lady we all think she was. There was some dodgy things going on there. There were. Yeah. Same with Prince Charles, especially with Prince Andrew. Oh, God, uh, I disagree man. with the institution on a political level, and I dislike the people on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Except Prince Harry. He's oh no, he went to a party dressed as a Nazi actually. Oh God, um, yes. That was that's a re- really weird thing. I've ever never really understood that. Posh people of... dressing up as Nazis for parties. Yeah, why is that funny? Don't know. <laughs> somebody annihilated <laughs> nine million. Jewish people, you go dress up as a, one of them. It's an it's it's an odd it's an odd trend. Um, posh people and Nazis. There's a lot of history there. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. Uh, but I think even in the federal UK, it would be a a federal kingdom. It's quite a rare thing to have a federal it kingdom. Would be. Belgium is a federal kingdom. Is it? Yeah, oh. because obviously Flanders and Wallonia. Yes, uh, they don't like each other. No, that they much. do not. No, so they're very much federated. Uh, but one king. Um, and I think the UK would have to go the same way. I think mm-hmm. you could probably pass federalism in a referendum, but if you said, yeah, we're going to scrap the monarchy and bring in federalism, that, I, would, that, that would not that fly. Would not, no. That would not fly for a second. And I think it's because I think Britain was the only country pretty much without a revolution or any sort of major, mm. major changes. We've always been a very steady, consistent change slowly yeah. over time, trying to adapt to the environment, nothing too drastic. Which has done, which has been to its benefit, I would say. Yeah, no, um, we've not had any like dictatorial regimes, mm-hmm. real, not in modern history anyway. Uh, we've not had 
too many civil wars too recently. I think it's it's often said that, oh, Britain doesn't have a revolutionary sp- spirit. British mm-hmm. people don't have a fight. I don't think that's quite true. I think it's not so much that the working classes and obviously earlier the peasants weren't up for revolution. I think it's that our aristocrats were a bit cleverer than the ones in France. <laughs> in France, for example... Uh, the people were starving. They went and had baths in strawberries. Didn't give out any sort of reform or any leeway. Yeah. And they ended up with their heads chopped off. The British aristocracy, people started demanding things and they slowly started giving them away. Mm-hmm. Very, very slowly, sort of breadcrumbing. Yeah. They slowly, like, like the vote, for example. At first, lords were like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have the vote, Mr. King, man. And the king was like, oh, sure, I don't want to lose my head. <laughs> and then obviously the middle classes, the sort of affluent bourgeois if we're going to say that yeah uh, they were like we're going to have it too and the mm-hmm. king was like ah if i have to give it to you and then obviously working class people were like well we want it as well and there was almost a revolution there but yeah. they were clever enough to be like i will give some more give, we'll some, give more some more give yeah. some more uh, and then obviously women were the last group yeah um well it's quite interesting middle class women and working class men got the vote on the same day yes they did in 1918 mm-hmm. it's interesting we're going to be very left-wing here uh, we learn a lot about the suffragettes and the fight for the women's vote we don't learn anything about the fight for the men's working no, class men's yeah, vote, all, even yeah. though they were they were interlinked and mm-hmm. they were next to each other, and I think I'm going to be very very left wing on your podcast quickly. Go for it. Um, the reality for that is capitalism has been racist. It has been misogynistic. It's always classist. Mm-hmm. You can get rid of racism and still have capitalism. You can mm-hmm. get rid of gender that's, inequality. That's, that's and still debatable have already, but, but that yeah. is true actually. <laughs> but you cannot separate capitalism and classism. There is no way to separate the two. So they'll happily say mm-hmm. they'll happily say. This is how women got the vote. We gave women the vote. But they won't say, oh, yeah, working class people were also denied it for mm, centuries. That's true. They don't like talking about class. No. Ever. Because it's, it's very prevalent. It's everywhere. But once you start talking about that, conversations about everything start getting quite awkward. About power, about wealth. Yeah. It all starts getting a bit, a bit uncomfortable for people in power and wealth. People would argue that, I mean, in order for any sort of capitalist or any sort of system, there needs to be a level of inequality to help fuel the people at the top and again kind of trickle down economics mm. that kind of thing but there needs to be a level of inequality which can never be escaped but you can raise this I think the argument you can raise the standards to a, a, a place where it's enjoyable and people can actually live not living miserably or anything yeah. like that but I think that's the argument putting it to a, a certain standard where everybody can we can strive to at least well this is sort of a common misconception isn't it people think oh socialism means everyone earns the same wage it doesn't mm-hmm. uh, it's like equality of outcome people think equality of outcome means everyone earns the same it don't equality of outcome means everyone gets enough and everyone gets a similar amount like i like even in a socialist society people could still earn three four five times what someone else earns depending on danger seniority experience doesn't mean absolute equality obviously inequality is always going to exist there's Mm -hmm. always going to be inequalities between people and i would argue well at the end of the day i don't think anyone works harder in a decade than someone else does in a year so i would have a wage cap where nobody can earn 10 times more than the lowest paid worker. CEO can't earn more than 10 times what the lowest paid worker does. Mm. I think that is a relatively fair system. So yeah, inequality will always exist. But I think the big question is what level of it? Mm-hmm. What, how much inequality do we want? Because right now it's huge. Yeah. And do we want inequality even when that means the people at the bottom don't have enough to live on? If we brought everyone up so everyone had a minimum standard of living that wasn't in poverty, that wasn't in struggle, everyone got a comfortable income, mm-hmm. And then some people had a bit more. I don't think most people object to that. Most people aren't like, yeah, I want all rich people dead. I want a completely equal society. Most people, even on the left, most people just want a decent standard, a good life for good people. I see. But then, hmm. Because when you said, um, what is it, equality of outcome. Yeah. It's it's not about everybody being the same and having the no, same interests and stuff like that. That would be absolute equality. I see. Because could you, ha- but it's... <sighs> Isn't can you have equality of opportunity and equality outcome at the same time? Well, this is the thing. You when you learn in school, well, in politics school, you learn four types of equality: equality of opportunity, mm-hmm. equality of outcome, another one, and equality, <laughs> absolute equality. Yeah. Um, and we need all of them. You need absolute equality in terms of the law. Yeah. The law should be absolutely equal to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And then you need equality of opportunity so everyone has the same chances. But if everyone's got the same chance to be like a doctor, some people don't want to be a doctor. Some people like being a bus That's driver. That's the argument saying against equality of outcome. Mm. That's so it. you also need equality of um, 
sort of a, a quality of welfare. That's the fourth one. Mm-hmm. So everyone has enough. Everyone has equal rights in terms of law and privileges. I see. Um, or e- equal opportunity so everyone can do the job they want to do and a quality of outcome so you don't have excessive inequality. People can still earn a lot more than someone else, but it doesn't get excessive. It doesn't get to a situation where you've got kids going hungry and mm-hmm. billionaires buying another yacht. So really, it's not which quality do we want. We need all of them. Mm-hmm. We just decide what variations of all of them. I see. It's not, yeah, I, I can I can understand that. I mean, I think my my understanding of equality of outcome is is very geared towards a very it's very an absolute kind of mindset. Mm. Um, you can't, equality of outcome is that everybody has to do that. You know, blah blah blah. It was all the same. It's all the same. Everybody has to do the same, even though they might not have the same interest mm. or the same capability to do that. That would be kind absolute of like a, equality. Yeah, that's, I think that's probably what I. Because all the media, all the people in the media who talk about equality of outcome, what is it, Jordan Peterson you may have heard mm. of? He, he goes on a lot about equality of outcome, how it doesn't correlate in any sense with equality of, outcome, uh, equality of opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I disagree with that. Um, I think what a lot of people think of equality of outcome is absolute equality. The only place we really see absolute equality is in the rank and file of the army. That is absolute mm-hmm. equality. But equality of outcome is just sort of a roughly equal amount. Everyone gets enough. And everyone's got roughly equal. You can still have more than someone else. So rather than it being a quality of opportunity or a quality of outcome, bit of both. A bit of both. Bit of both. I see. Hmm. I mean, I've never thought of it like that. So it's oh, this yeah. is it's a good it's a good little thought. Hmm. Quality of outcome. This has really struck me. Can't lie. <laughs> <laughs> a quality of outcome. Yeah. No. I mean, let's hope we get to a stage where. Oh yeah. There we go. I completely forgot what I was going to say, but I remembered it. Um. Based on that conversation, my whole, especially where the economy is going and how mm. it's all going to be tech-based, knowledge-based, and everything like that, my whole argument is a lot of a lot of ba- a lot of jobs, a lot of skilled-based jobs, are going to go away, mm. and people are going to be left behind, and they're going to be replaced by automation. I think one of the only real, um, op- like solutions we have is probably such uh, what is it minimum what is it what is it what minimum is it? income yeah Universal minimum income. income yes exactly and I think that's probably the only way we're all gonna mm. be able to survive and and kind of reduce inequality I yeah think. that is that is an example of um, what do we call it now yeah. equality of welfare everyone having enough to live on mm-hmm. um, I think the thing with automation Rudiger Bregman brilliant author Dutch guy mm-hmm. wrote a book called Utopia for Realists and Humankind two of the best books I've ever read. Um, he basically said, and I do agree with him a lot on this, um, capitalism will never let people not have jobs. Even if those jobs are absolute crap, even if they are meaningless, capitalism mm-hmm. will keep people working because people not working and not having anything is a risk to it. I see. Um, and, and people I, are more likely to rebel, have a revolution if there's, it's just not, if there's well, nothing yeah, if, for them. If, if, if everything's automated, if everything's automated, so there's basically an abundance of time and an abundance of wealth, mm-hmm. but all of that time and wealth is kept for the wealthy, Yeah, people will... We won't have that, no. People won't be having that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, like, what would you say? So you're thinking automation, a lot of jobs will go mm-hmm. and the jobs that will left will feel, feel meaningless. Most people already think their job's meaningless. That's true. If you do polling, a lot of people think, yeah, my job does not matter. If I vanished, it would be fine. And I think on another polling is 40% of uh, mm. Brits are in the wrong job and then completely have no interest in yeah. what they're doing at the moment. So uh, what I'd hope with automation, being a very optimistic person, is there'll be less jobs. Mm-hmm. There'll also be less work to be done but more money. So we can all work less, mm-hmm. do a job that's easier, work less time, and get more for it. That is the truth of humanity for a long, long time. Less work is possible for more wages. And, but the thing is, you're going to have to fight for that. People at the top are not going to be like, oh, yeah, you can now have... Like, automation comes in, but they're not going to yeah. be like, oh, yeah, you can have time, more time off now. Exactly. They'll no. either be like, here's another job that's complete bullshit. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, you're unemployed now, you get nothing. And I think at the same time, when that when that trend is happening, I don't think we're there yet. No. Definitely not there yet. But I think at the same time, the government has to invest more into education. Mm. Education and skills. I think one of the better things I saw Keir Starmer said as well during the conference was... I'm going to put skill, kind of like a skill school kind of thing all around the country, kind of try and give everybody an opportunity to go a state-funded kind of education uh, institute to try and learn, just, I don't know, go into like mm. into Python, learn some tech, learn some something, anything, like something to boost their own skill set as well as build their attractiveness in terms of the work market, you know? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that bit, but that's interesting because what he's describing there is Labour's policy of a national education service, which is something Corbyn came up with. 
But when Corbyn said it, obviously it was communism and it was yeah. pie in the sky, it was impossible. Now Starmer said it, it's sensible realism. Because exactly. whether a policy is good or bad doesn't depend on the policy, it depends on who said it. It's a mm-hmm. fun little thing. <laughs> you know, that, is a, that is a brilliant idea, a national education service. Because schools in the UK are a bit of a mess at the moment. You've got state schools, you've got grammar schools still sort of lingering. You've got academies. Academies, free well. schools. A lot of the academies and free schools was a project of the coalition, which has not worked. No. They all need, it's a whole thing, needs destructuring and restructuring. And especially, um, it's also a problem. Technology is changing so fast now that kids are learning in school. They're sort of training in school for jobs that don't exist yet. They'll end up doing jobs that don't currently exist. Mm-hmm. So how are we meant to teach them? How yeah? How are you meant to prepare a whole generation for something you don't even know what, exactly. what could happen? It's not got the answers for that. You need lifelong <laughs> education. Yeah. Lifelong education. People go back rather than it being a stigma of going to night school mm. or being at uni because there was sort of sort of a stigma against mature students and it's like oh they're they're forty years old and they're yeah, my well, lecture. There should got, be no stigma. No, there shouldn't. You've got to have you've got to have lifelong learning, mm-hmm. especially in a world like this. And I think one oh, in one oh, one book I read, I think it was Sapiens. Mm. Um, it was a whole the whole basis of our human evolution was understanding that. It's okay to un, to know the to not know what we know. To yeah. not, if if you know what I mean. So if you just making sure, accepting the fact that there's some things out there you don't know about, mm. and you need to go strive to go and learn. And there always there always be something you don't know. So there's always that strive, that motivation. So I think that's probably key. And like there should be no stigma at all no. for people who come when they're older. Go into school. I mean, fair play to them. They acknowledge that they want to learn something new mm. and they want to enhance their career, enhance their life in any sense. I think that's one of the reasons I love I love Coursera, the, the website. Yeah. Where, you know, free courses online, you get to learn something new. I've started a Python. Oh, I'd, nice. I, I'd never been interested in tech in anything. Like, it's it's attractive, you know. Yeah, it's through. good. It's, it's an interesting thing just to learn, have a, have a browse through and maybe learn something new as well. So, like... The skill, that's probably one of the best things I've seen in a long time. And education in the UK, as you said, is a big mess. It is a bit of a mess. A big mess. So, I mean, hopefully we get that. Hopefully. Sorted. Sorted immediately. But, yeah, education is the key to Mm -hmm. our future. And if it, (laughs) the conservatives have not done a good job with it at all. No. Like many things. But... Yeah, I mean, I think we've almost gone through an hour here. Oh, nice. And I think, yeah, we'll call it there, I think. Nice. Well, it's great having you on, you know. Yeah, thank you for having me here. No, I mean, you're more than welcome to come back on, you know. I would happily come. When, when more stuff happens, I'll happily come in. Yeah, no, and definitely. talk about the stuff. I mean, we've got this. There's bound to be more stuff to happen mm. and occur, so yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening to this episode. And if you'd like to hear something something similar to any sort of politics discussion, um, well, what's, what's the name of your Instagram page? We'll shout this out. Oh, a few things wrong on Instagram. A few things wrong. 40,000. 40, almost. Almost, 40, almost. That is, you know, that's that's very <laughs> impressive. That's, I would appreciate a shout out as well. <laughs> we will I'll definitely get that done. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. And yeah, no, I'll catch you guys in a bit. See you in a bit. Bye-bye.